Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of England. Episode 68, where peasants fight back and about towns. Every week, I recommend an audiobook, courtesy of Audible. I'd like to start this week's history by going back to Professor Prestwich and his downtrodden peasants. And look, I am certainly not about to mix it with an eminent historian who's forgotten more than I've learnt. But it's just worth putting the statement into context, which of course he spends several podcasts worth of words doing. Yes, your average peasant did not face a life of joy, laughter and the unrestricted pursuit of happiness. Yes, your average peasant was probably pretty trodden on. But that did not mean that to be a peasant was to be a doormat. They were quite capable of working together and fighting back. We should put this in a bit of context. From around 1200, magnates and major lords were aware of a growing problem of control. Larger tenants in particular were becoming more independent. Part of this was that royal justice was being extended to all free men. But the question was, where should the line be drawn between who was free and who was unfree? As we've said before, lords had no problem with royal justice, and indeed they wanted more and better quality royal justice. But hey, this royal justice was surely only for the people who matter. Lords were very very unkeen on their tenants escaping the jurisdiction of the manorial courts. Partly this was a question of money. There were tidy profits to be made. Partly it was a question of control. So, around this time, lawyers in the royal courts developed ways of testing the legal status of people and whether they were free or unfree. And if a peasant owed heavy service dues or had to pay the lord the fine of merchant to get married, they were deemed to be a villain. And the term villain therefore now came to mean specifically an unfree peasant, whereas before it had just been French for villanus, villager. Things are now being much more clearly defined and tied down. The advantages of proving the status of villains as far as the Lord was concerned were pretty straightforward. 
Firstly, it gave a chance to make sure everyone was absolutely clear about the dues that were owed to him. But more importantly, the villain had no access to royal justice. And so we have something of a resurgence of manorial courts in the 13th century that allowed lords to do a bit of downtreading peasant-wise. The peasantry, on the other hand, were not given to being trodden on without a fight. So, for example, William of Pilton in Rutland complained to the king's court that he'd been deprived of his freeholding by Bartholomew, son of Eustace. He took advantage of Henry II's writ of novel de Saisin to fight the case, as freemen were perfectly entitled to do. Bartholomew responded that William was a villain and therefore had no right to go before a royal court and managed to prove his case. Which meant that William would have to go to his lord's manorial court to get a judgment about whether or not Bartholomew, son of Eustace, had robbed him of his lands unfairly. The lord in question was, you guessed it, Bartholomew, son of Eustace. If any side bets were placed on the outcome of that particular case, I think I know where the clever money was. Though I'm sure Bartholomew, son of Eustace, asked himself some pretty searching questions. As we'll discover when we talk about the lords in a couple of episodes' time, the lords spent a good deal of their free time trying to screw a bit more money out of the peasantry. And they had a good hand to play, but they didn't have quite all the cards. Once fixed, an annual free cash rent was difficult to change, which meant that some peasants profited from the rise in prices for produce, though these were mainly the free peasantry. And the lords' powers could be less impressive than you might think. Lords made very exaggerated claims about their powers over unfree peasants. So, for example, there's a famous quote from the time that the unfree tenant would not know when he went to bed what he would be doing the following day, i.e. that the lord could summon tenants to labour services as they pleased. In fact, services were based very much on custom and practice, and tenants fought tooth and nail to prevent any innovations. Plus, in practice, enforcing many of the rights were simply too much like hard work to keep implementing. So one example is that in theory no peasant had any right to own a piece of land. In practice, although the lord would charge a fee to take possession like the Heriot of old, it would have been far too tiresome to find a new family every time. So property effectively became hereditary for the tenant. Lords also basically accepted that peasants could sell their land as long as the transaction came through the Lord's court. The peasants extended and protected their rights through a technique every child knows well and is born with, mulish resistance and frequent whining, to exert constant pressure to get their own way and eventually wear the boss down. If you want to learn about effective negotiation, you need look no further than the teenager. It's all there. The Franklins and peasants who held offices such as the Reeve and the Bailiff probably provided some leadership and negotiated directly with the Lord. Peasants would also exercise one of my own personal favourite techniques, namely selective memory. So when called before the manorial court to answer questions about what customs were owed, the peasantry might just possibly not remember all of them. Negotiations were often carried out through collective bargaining, which gave the tenants some leverage, or sometimes the peasants could buy themselves some rights. Here's a for instance then from a place called Borton on the Hill in Gloucestershire. Customary tenants were supposed to do a day's service on certain days of the week. If the day fell on a religious holiday, the Lord, Westminster Abbey in this case, lost the day's work. But then, a zealous abbot decided that this sucked and insisted they do the day owed on a different day. The peasants resisted, so the abbot charged them money for the lost day instead. Now, the peasants lost their court case when they took it there, but by the end of all this, 
effort, the abbot was so exhausted that he let them off anyway. He was then, incidentally, very upset when the reeve, Henry Milksop, described as fair of face but with an ugly snout, didn't bother to thank him. For the abbot, this was to a degree a game. To the peasants concerned, it was very important and it could be life or death. Then, of course, there's passive resistance. Sometimes peasants would just not turn up. Or they'd work together in a coordinated withdrawal of service. Or maybe they'd just work badly. There's a rather nice study that shows that customary work was 30% less productive than wage labour. Or there's active resistance. There's a court case in Dorset where the people tore down the hedges and fences the Lord had put around common land. Or finally there was flight, with the towns being the most tempting and obvious destination. One final and rather illuminating strategy was an appeal to the rights of ancient domain. The idea was that if the land had once belonged to the king, the tenants had therefore once been free, and the king's powers could restore their liberties. They would go to great lengths to argue the case. So, for example, in South Petherton in Somerset, in southwest of England, the tenants hired a lawyer for £5 to bring a case against their lord. The fine they were avoiding was genuinely cotton-picking, a few pence for pannage, i.e. the rights to take pigs onto the Lord's woods. By and large, these cases crash and burn. Royal courts are not massively impartial and tended to favour the Lords. But they do illuminate a few things. Firstly, this kind of continuous resistance may lose in the specific case, but it made it harder for the Lord to bring future ones. Often, they just didn't bother and the game didn't look to be worth the candle. Secondly, you can see that the tenants are often fighting on questions of principle. However hard up these guys might be, they are prepared to stump up the cash to fight an imposition, because they fear worse may come later. And thirdly, it demonstrates the kind of leadership that the better-off free peasants can show. In this Somerset case, it's they that pay most of the money. So that means that locally, the peasants do have a voice. We should also try to connect this with the provisions of Oxford, because I think there is a story there. Many, though by no means all, of the English barons had come to accept that the reforms they were trying to impose on the king also applied to them and the way they treated their people. Maybe part of this is about simple politics, and maybe part of it was genuine altruism. But you have to think that the argument is helped by the constant background of peasant resistance to unduly harsh exactions. Underlying all of this are a couple of themes that will connect us back at some time with the political crisis. Amongst the English peasantry and some chroniclers, we get glimpses of a belief that there had once been a time of good old laws where every Englishman was free. Then the Normans had come and put them into slavery. But from Henry's legal reforms of the late 12th century and through Magna Carta, the belief had been re-established that the king at least was subject to the law. OK, they knew full well that Magna Carta was basically about aristocratic privilege, but it was a short step to their basic belief that it was the right of every Englishman to use the law in court to protect his rights against the oppressing Norman lord if necessary, and this they did. It also meant that when de Montfort raised his standard against the king at Lewis, there were people willing to believe that he stood for the community of the realm and the rights of the ordinary English peasant. As far as de Montfort was concerned, the ordinary English peasant wasn't worth the rough end of a pineapple, but that didn't stop them believing it anyway. As we've seen last week, one of the drivers for the commercialisation of the rural peasantry were the opportunities that the towns presented for selling their produce. 
It's a good example of how the country and the town fed off each other in a kind of symbiotic relationship. The town provides specialist goods and a market for the country. The country provides people and raw materials for the town. There is a temptation to see the town as a kind of alien pimple on the backside that is the rural and feudal medieval world, and nothing could be further from the truth. As we know, it was often the local lords who established the towns. They were an integral part of the growing economy. And of course, families would have members in both town and country. The reasons why lords, the church and kings continued to set up towns in the 13th century are pretty obvious when you look at the maths. So in around 1200, the cathedral priory got £110 from rents in Canterbury. For another example, by 1300, a plot of land in Coventry had grown from £1 in value to £4. In Cheapside in London, which was of course absolutely prime commercial land, 100 square feet would cost you 10 shillings, i.e. half a pound. And that would get you 20 acres of agricultural land. The last time we spoke, I think London had reached a population of 25,000, and towns provided 10% of the total population. So, the update is that by 1300, London was 80,000 people strong, and towns account for 20% of the population. Indeed, by 1300, with 830 towns, really the opportunity for establishing new towns was now over. The bases were loaded. The comparative profile is pretty much the same as the 12th century to boot. London is by far the biggest town in England, with the three regional capitals of York, Bristol and Norwich, possibly each mustering 20,000. About 50 towns have over 2,000 people, and the rest qualify as glorified markets. Each town had a hinterland of at least six to seven miles, which to some degree was the result of a political decision, since it was decided that setting up new towns any closer than this would impact on existing towns. There was some attempt, therefore, to coordinate, with markets in the smaller centres being held on different days, so that the traders could move from place to place. And of course, the larger the town, the larger the hinterland. London is the obvious example, and this is one of those stories that will run and run as we go on through the centuries, and London grows like some vast monster, pulling in more and more people and resources from further and further away. At this time, London is pulling in resources from a distance of around 50 miles. Small towns around it, like Faversham in Kent, Ware in Hertfordshire, and Henley-on-Thames in Oxfordshire, were dominated by London traders, who bought up the produce of the local manors and villages to take them by cart or by water into London. In a sense, the regional town's tentacles stretched even further to some customers, particularly in specialist supplies. So the Bishop of Hereford in the late 13th century bought his parchment from Oxford and his wax and spices from London. The hinterland would of course vary according to the product, so cheap, heavy goods such as wood, came from only as far as 12 miles, because of the transport costs, whereas cattle, of course, could walk, and so came from much further. London had an additional advantage as it emerged as a centre of government, and therefore magnates bought houses in the suburbs of Hoburn, Southwark, and along the Strand. Just as London had a larger hinterland for goods, so also for pulling in people, from 50 miles or even further. Smaller towns would expect migrants from, let's say, 10 to 20 miles away. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I guess the reasons to migrate to the towns are pretty obvious, from economic migrants from the country with few prospects in the country to men with the capital to set themselves up in trade. Or it might be a trader expanding their business into a new town. Merchants found it convenient to have houses in more than one centre, and local landowners would also often set themselves up with permanent residences. During the 13th century, an element of craft began to be applied to the layout of towns. Or their extension as they grew. So, local roads would be diverted so that they went through the town to maximise visitors. The town was designed and built around the marketplace, and the market itself, itself was provided with stalls and a toll house. Often there would be a cattle or beast market at the edge of town, and streets were wide enough to take carts with stalls on either side. Sometimes back lanes were laid out so that deliveries could be made to the back of plots. As towns grew, new suburbs and extensions might often be planned, and many of the new streets or new lands that you find in towns actually come from the 13th century. If you ever get the chance to go to Chester, you can see quite how sophisticated some of the layouts became. The rows, as they have been called, have vaulted undercrofts that would have served as warehouses and wine cellars. Then there's a covered walkway above which gives access to the shops, with accommodation then above that. There's evidence of a similar arrangement in Southampton, but don't be fooled by the fancy performance stuff that survived. Most people still lived in rubbish conditions, and this is probably getting worse in the 13th century in that there are probably more people crammed into the same space. The average person would probably find themselves in a space 15 feet by 15 feet. There'd be a lot of rubbish about. There'd be a lot of different types of rubbish too. This is not an environment for the faint of heart, and would without doubt struggle to meet EU legislation. Butchers would chuck their scraps out, tanners would pour effluent into rivers and streams. Pretty much every industrial process from brewing to smithing produced smoke. Really, the one industry you wouldn't find would be a health spa. You'd also find a lot of pigs in the streets, since they're particularly good at scavenging the rubbish heaps. So, yes, not good. But, since the aristocrats generally lived in the centre of towns, you could guess that there were some measures being taken to clean stuff up. And we can begin to see some signs of a coordinated approach by 1300. There are the beginnings of piped water supplies, rubbish being carried out to tips at the edge of towns, and legal actions being taken to punish the worst excesses, such, for example, as having your neighbour's cesspit leaking into your cellar. Let me say for the record that if my neighbour's cesspit comes anywhere near my cellar, there will be words. Houses were being built with slates rather than thatch to help with the ever present fear of fire. I'm sure we talked about the various town occupations last time, so I won't go over them again in any detail, except to note that we know of 
175 occupations in the largest town, London, whereas you're probably looking at something like 20 in a small market centre. The single most important occupation would be food, since there was little space or time for most people to prepare their own in towns, and visitors would expect to be fed. So you can sort of imagine that the difference in specialisation between your bog-standard local town and places like London. Most places would have bakers, brewers, butchers and fishmongers. Probably larger places would have hucksters, women who walked about with baskets of bread, eggs, vegetables and the like, selling door-to-door for precious little profit. And then probably also the same for ale. Though the term for this lot were ganokas, tapsters or tranters, depending on where you lived. However, if you lived in a grander place, you might spot traders as specialised as the garlic monger, for example, or my personal favourite, the stockfish monger. Your stockfish monger dealt in dried cod from Norway, which, I've, which I have no doubt is an honourable profession. Just like villages, though, towns rarely specialised in a particular trade. There are exceptions. So we hear of the Knives of Thaxted, a town in Essex. The Scarlet Cloth of Lincoln was internationally prized for a while, competing with the finer cloths of Flanders from across the sea in the Low Country, and the Cord of Bridgeport as well. There is one exception which gives a nice little case study of medieval industry and its economics, so let's have a shot at describing the famed herring of Yarmouth, a particularly fine fish, though even from Yarmouth not good enough to use to cut a tree down. The first thing is small scale. We're a long way from mass production in medieval times, Each boat would cost between three and £27 to build and be crewed by five men. During the six-week season, the boats would do two-day trips into the North Sea with intervals between them to allow time to rest and unload and all that sort of thing. So a boat might do 14 trips in a season. And each boat might hope to make 20 quid from its catches of, say, 120,000 to a quarter of a million herring. And the profit was then shared out amongst the boat owners and the crew. Now, obviously, that's a lot of fish, and they go off. So, the vast majority would be cured by smoking to make either red herring or salting to make white herring. Vast quantities were then traded at herring fairs, which sound like a real hoot. Put me down for a herring fair if you have one in your area. Herrings were widely consumed at all levels of society. So, why is it a good model? Because the initial entry costs and scale are pretty low. You don't need to form a massive company with lots of upfront money to make it work. The product is pretty much a commodity. The virtues of branding have not yet kicked in to provide guys with trendy glasses and pretentious PowerPoint presentations calling themselves marketing consultants with Porsches and Beamers yet. But don't fret now, that'll come. Just a few centuries to wait. And, sigh, the people who make the real money are not the people who brave the dark nights and the dangers of the North Sea... No, they're generally speaking the merchants who move the product around and connect the producer with the customer. I'm sure there are many weary manufacturers who would tell me that things haven't changed much in that respect. By the start of the period we're looking at, i.e. 1200, most of the basics about town rights and government have pretty much been set. So we'll just do a bit of updating here. By 1300, you might think of there as being three types of town. At the top of the tree, you have the royal town. This meant that the town accounted directly to the exchequer for its fee farm and they were completely self-governing and free of the tensions of the royal sheriff. There were eight of these in 1200 and 48 by 1300 and there's no doubt this is where every town wanted to be. Next, you've got genuine towns who had all the internal town rights you'd expect, i.e. all the tenants had burgage rights that included their land as freehold, 
access to their own borough courts, freedom to trade, that sort of thing. But they are subject to the sheriff. And then at the bottom of the heap, you have towns that just sort of appeared, that looked and smelt like towns, but didn't have any of the legal setup. As you might expect, they hated this and were always bellyaching about being under the control of their lord or ecclesiastical institution and wanted their freedom, etc, etc. But oddly enough, it's actually very difficult to find any evidence that it made a halfpence of difference. Barry St Edmunds, for example, had a high old time proving its rights with the abbot, including kidnapping the abbot himself with the connivance of people in London and taking the guy abroad for three months. But meanwhile, it was Suffolk's richest town, and richer than Northampton, a royal town not far away. The town of Boston in Lincolnshire, not to be confused with the one with the tea fixation, was one of the richest towns in the country, and yet was part of the honour of Richmond, with its officials appointed each year by the Earl of Richmond. The air of the town was supposed to be freer, and I guess to an extent that it was. But don't be fooled. There's no escaping the power of the man. So let's take the most extreme example of London, whose sheer size, you'd think, would give it greater opportunities for democratic rule. And indeed, as we know, it had a mayor, elected, according to popular view, by the people at a folk moot. Meanwhile, the city was divided into 24 wards, each headed by an alderman who was also elected. But the realities of life were that the position of alderman became practically hereditary, and 70% of the aldermanries were shared out between 16 families, who became known as the Barons of London. They argued fiercely that it was in fact them, the aldermen, who had the right to elect the mayor, and by and large, they won the argument. During the 1260s, the people had their time in the sun, rebelling against this view of life and winning a charter, only to see it reversed when they'd lost their leverage by 1274. In this case, London reflects the way most towns were organised, i.e. controlled by an oligarchy rather than an autocracy. Note that by no means everyone living, working or regularly coming into the town had all those lovely rights, only tenants. The guilds and the great men, they ran the place. Of course, people were closer packed in towns, better able to communicate and therefore better able to protest. So there's just a smidgen of class warfare around. In 1290, for example, a case inspired by the poor was brought against the oligarchy at Lincoln, and as a result, Lincoln was taken into the king's hands for ten years. In Newcastle, the exchequer heard a case from the poorer burgesses that the richer burgesses had been making it hard for them to trade, and the poor burgesses won their case. In York, opponents of the ruling elite claimed they had managed the tax system in their own favour. And in Bristol, a full-scale revolution took place, electing a popular mayor. It took four years and a full-scale siege to reduce them to obedience. So look, there are some encouraging signs of demands for equality, but probably the main story is that in the town, you simply swapped one master for another, though it's undeniable that greater opportunities for advancement existed. Over the 13th century, the volume of trade with the outside world increased enormously. Records aren't brilliant, but in 1204, external trade could have been in the order of 55 to 75,000 quid. By 1300, we are probably looking at something like 500,000 pounds. So even with inflation and the growth of population, the amount of trade has grown threefold, and the amount per head has grown as well. Again, much of this is about expansion rather than improved productivity, with the few technical changes we've already talked about. The quality of the English coinage helped. 
quality was rigorously maintained throughout, with none of the variable quality that occurred on the continent, even without a Eurozone. In 1320, more than £1 million in coin was circulating, compared to 37500 in 1100. But having said that, the silver penny was still a pretty clumsy way of doing business. Edward I tried to help by minting halfpennies and farthings, but there was never enough to go round. In the 1290s, there was an influx of foreign silver coins, but in the main, a rule was maintained that only English coins circulated. Now look, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa, this is something I confess I completely missed, since I remember someone asking about this some time ago. Anyway, the thing I completely missed was that Henry II had set up foreign exchanges in eight cities in 1180, so since then, it had been English coin or nout. So now that I have righted that grievous wrong, I think it's probably the moment to pull stumps for today. The summary of all this town stuff is that towns provided a great driver of the medieval English economy, providing specialised services for the countryside and a market for rural produce. Their growth and success during the century mirrored the general growth of the economy and population. And as they grew, it became clearer and clearer that, although they sat within the feudal framework, they needed their own representation and voice. The magnates could no longer convincingly speak for them. And that's a theme we'll come back to in the future. It's also worth noting that we've not quite finished as far as trade is concerned, or indeed not by any means finished, since we've not talked in any detail about merchants or external trade. All I can say is that gives you something all to look forward to next week. So as ever, thanks very much to everybody who's commented, have a great week and good luck. Bye.